This is Drafting the Past, a podcast about the craft of writing history. I'm your host, Kate Carpenter, and this is the 30th episode of Drafting the Past. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Lauren Lassop Shepard about the process of writing and revising her debut book, Resistance from the Right, Conservatives and the Campus Wars. Thank you. It's great to be here. Lauren is a historian of higher education, and she teaches at the University of New Orleans. We had this conversation earlier this year when Lauren was still in the process of going over final page proof. So you'll hear us talking about that stage of publication. But the book is out now and you can find it at any bookseller. I'll be sure to include the link in the show notes. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy our conversation about the hard work of turning a dissertation into a book, interdisciplinarity and imposter syndrome, and how to organize the results of a smash and grab archive trip something that I think a lot of us can relate to. Here's my conversation with Dr. Lauren Lasab Shepard. So I have always enjoyed writing. I mean, as a, as a kid, I always kept like a diary or a journal and I still have all of those. I haven't sat down to read them, but maybe one day I'll do that. So, I mean, I've always enjoyed writing down, you know, the, the thoughts that are always kind of swirling in our, our heads, I guess, as thinkers and historians, even, you know, like I said, when I was a kid, before I thought of myself as anything like that, but it was always, writing's always been a good way for me to communicate things. So one of the stories that kind of comes to mind, uh, when I was in third grade, I, my neighbor, uh, had a dog and the dog got out and bit me and I had to get stitches and my arm was in a sling. And I remember going this to class I guess the next day and everyone wanted to know what happened. Like, why is your arm in a sling? And I, I couldn't say it. So I wrote it down <laughs> and then I ended up writing the whole story out for my teacher and she read it to the class. And I, I think my love for writing comes from just a love for reading. Uh, my dad growing up always had a, a book around his dad. My grandfather was always reading like Western paperbacks I, I didn't receive that interest from him, but certainly the, the reading interest. What made you decide to go back to grad school? Whenever I got to college as an undergrad, I really had, I really just didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I was a French major for a long time. And uh, my parents were like, Lauren, you need a job. What will you ever do with this? And then I thought, maybe I'll be a French teacher. And so that was kind of my segue into education. And then I decided, well, wait a minute, as much as I love French, I also love English. I also really love history. And so Mississippi State, where I started my undergrad, uh, had this like hybrid create your own degree program, basically. Uh, it was like a general liberal arts degree. And so I was on that track for a long time where I focused 18 hours in history, 18 in English, 18 in French. And so... Anyway, uh, and then I also got a K-12 teaching license. So I was a high school history teacher um, for several years. And then when I went to grad school, uh, I started on the history track and I was, real, I was still interested in French. My master's thesis was on the French colonization of the Gulf Coast, which is funny now because it's so far from what I, what I research and what I do every day, every day now. But yeah, so that was, that was grad school. And then um, I didn't think that a PhD... In history, which, by the way, for uh, listeners, my PhD is not in history. It's in higher education administration. I didn't think it was likely that I was going to find a job as a history professor. And this is 15 when I started my PhD program. 
Um, so I had the master's. I was already teaching at a community college, uh, World Civ 1 and 2. So that kind of gave me the practice as a professor that I wanted, you know, while still being realistic that I was probably never going to find a tenure track job at an R1 somewhere. So, but I knew I wanted a PhD. I knew I loved the college environment. I wanted to stay there. I loved education. So I could have done, I think my program or my my school offered um, like a EDD in education. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write a dissertation. The EDD doesn't always require that. So the PhD route that I followed was higher ed administration, which I kind of joke today is like a business degree. Uh, if you look at the curriculum, a lot of it is about the law in higher education, uh, finance in higher ed, org and admin, lots of theory courses on student development. But yeah, I mean, it gave me all the things that I was interested in. I still had my own history background and I was still teaching World Civ 1 and 2 after I left high school. So yeah, I mean, I've kind of had a, a field in both worlds of the dark side of administration as well as in the history classroom. Well, I want to turn and talk to you about the practicalities of writing. So when and where do you do your writing? Now I mostly write at home, but I have been known to work in the coffee shop or uh, in a restaurant. But I really like the environment that I need to, to function best is total silence. So if I am somewhere that's public, I usually have like canceling headphones on or, you know, I'm I'm at the point in my writing where I'm just doing small revisions. And so it's okay if there's some little background distractions. But at the very beginning, I, I've got a total silence. So it's usually at my house. Um, I've written in every room of my house. Uh, I have a desk. I have a, a formal office space, but it's not always here. Sometimes I'm outside in the backyard with my dogs uh, because they need eyes on me all the time. Uh, and so <laughs> my place in the house is usually dictated by where they'd like me to be. So I've been at the kitchen counter, dining, dining table, you name it. But I will say before, for when I was still working on my dissertation, so I graduated in 2020, so before COVID, I did have a favorite writing place and I probably need to get back to it. Uh, and that is, there's a satellite campus of the University of Southern Mississippi, about 30 minutes from where I live now. And it's on the beach. Uh, and so I would sneak up to the top floor in the library and the that floor itself is just gorgeous. There's these huge floor to ceiling windows. It overlooks this uh, really spacious lawn. There's all these really old twisted oaks um, and the lawn runs out into the Gulf. Um, and so it's just absolutely gorgeous. There's so much natural light. Uh, it's quiet anyway, because nobody's up there. <laughs> um, and I used to just like take up all the space. I would take up two massive tables and lay all my books out and all my printed papers out highlighters and pens. And I did a lot of work there, but then the library closed after COVID. And so I just kind of got into, into the habit of writing here, but now that I think about it, yeah, I, I need to get back to, to that library. Do you have a routine that you like to follow each day? No, uh, I don't. I will be very honest and admit that I don't have a routine. I just, I get it in when I can, but I will say that if this is anything like a routine, I I do usually have like a concentrated like week or two of time where I know I'm writing. And so I'll know in advance, I'll block off on my calendar, any commitments that I could move around, you know, outside of the work that I have to do every day. And yeah, I'll just grind. I just <laughs> pedal to the metal and, and get it all done uh, in that space. 
And that's helpful for me too, because I, I like the intensity of like, this is all I'm doing right now. This is the only thing I'm going to think about. At least writing for me, when it's, when it's on my mind, I can really flesh my thoughts out when it's the only thing I'm doing. Like it's, it doesn't leave my mind, whether I'm showering, whether I'm driving, if I wake up in the middle of the night and I have a thought, it's all, all right there together. And I can, it helps me kind of crank things out maybe a little bit more efficiently. So how do you like to organize your research and writing? Well, I, so the last two archival trips that I've had, um, I've come up with a pretty good system. So both the trips um, had a lot of just data, like a lot of content that I needed to capture in the few days that I was there. So I really did just like a smash and grab where, you know, I walked into the archive the moment that it opened, I sat down and I'm just taking pictures of everything. And so Adobe has their scan app. That's been really helpful for me. I just, I, I'm taking pictures and then automatically they're saved in my phone as a PDF. So yeah, I mean, I, I usually can't even read the documents. I just know this is a box. I need it. So I'm going to take a picture of it. If it's not helpful to me, then maybe it will be one day or maybe I can share it with somebody else who is looking at these same things. Um, so yeah, I take lots of pictures. Then that night uh, I go to the hotel room or possibly even if there's like a restaurant nearby. I'll sit down, put my headphones on, uh, upload all the PDFs on my computer, look at what I have and start labeling. And one thing that really has helped me label the last two trips, and by the way, this is shout out to whoever gave me this idea on Twitter. This is not original to me. I don't remember who told me, but I, I can't take credit for it. But it's helpful to, in your camera roll, have a picture of the box in the folder. So in the order that all your files are, it can be a helpful reminder that this is this came from this folder or what have you. So yeah, so that I label things in my computer exactly as they are labeled in the archive. Um, and that helps if I ever you know, need to reach back out to the archivist and say, this is what I'm looking for. You know, there's, there's some continuity there. So I don't have to figure out, you know, how did I recode whatever their coding system was? Yeah. And then it's really, it's really nice to have digital versions of everything. Actually at my feet right now are several wicker baskets full of file folders of like printed journal articles from my dissertation. And I've been meaning to go back and scan them all into PDFs uh, to save with what I have now that's all digital, but I haven't done it yet. But yeah, I think that's my new system. It's worked really well, probably until someone on Twitter tells me any better. Uh, that's probably what I'll keep doing. I also love Adobe Scan, so I'm happy to hear someone else shout out <laughs> to it. What then, what does the process look like to take that mass of material and work through it and get to a point where you can write? So for the book, I really was just like undoing what I did for the dissertation. And um, so I guess I should start with the dissertation. I, I separate them because in my mind, they are two totally different monsters. <laughs> They're completely different projects, but uh, one did come out of the other. So um, initially, I it helps for me to have some sort of like visual and maybe that comes from my background in teaching K-12 and like teaching students how to write. Let's, let's graph this out. I love a timeline. So uh, what that looks like is in Microsoft Words, just bullet points. So I, I need to map things out chronologically to help kind of understand the order of events first. So usually it starts with something simple like that, just a timeline. So there's no, I haven't developed any argument yet. You know, I haven't even begun looking for themes. I just want to know what is the order of events. Uh, and then step two would be yeah, looking for themes and coding them. So what that looks like uh, is the highlight function. I think for the for the book, 
I had four major like themes and that was probably true for the dissertation too. But yeah, I mean, anything that had to do with the Vietnam war got coded red, anything that had to do with civil rights got coded blue. Um, and there was a yellow and a green for, for different things. But yeah, so once I have my timeline and I can kind of see this like, rainbow of colors from there, it's just making, I guess I'll uh, compare it to like a Rubik's cube. Like you're trying to get all your colors chunked into uh, certain things. And if that means moving them around on the timeline, then I can do that. But that to me helps me map out like a chapter structure. Even again, as I said, I don't have any arguments developed yet. I just need to see, you know, when these big trends are coming and going and what they're doing over time. Uh, so after I've got a timeline, after I've sort of coded everything, if I can, if I can make even bigger chunks of this data and figure out, okay, what, what would a logical chapter structure be? Oh, by the way, I should say the, the book, not the dissertation, but the book is in two parts. And that is largely a function of this coding. Uh, that's just how things naturally sorted out. I realized, okay, yes, this is a clear part one and part two, even though the book itself is only about three years, 1967 to 1970. Yeah, so when it gets to, like, let's say I'm starting on a chapter, just pulled up a blank Word document. I'll just copy what I have from my newly arranged timeline, throw it in the Word document, and then just start writing. I wish I could say I had uh, a nice process like, oh, I make this perfect outline and then I just fill in the details from there. But that is so not true. I'm not a good outliner. I actually much prefer a reverse outline to figure out what it is I've said after I've said everything. So yeah, I just start, I just start like brain dumping. I put all my words and thoughts on the page and then I don't write in order. I, I don't go from start to finish. I kind of do like the meat in the middle, like the 15 to 85% of the book. So basically no intro and conclusion. I should say that. I don't frame the story yet because at this point, I probably still don't have my argument developed yet either, even though I might be able to sense what's kind of bubbling up, but it takes time. I know for my dissertation, I remember for some, and I don't remember this about the book, but for the dissertation, for sure, I wrote chapters in two week increments. That was like the time I allotted myself start to finish. So from like the timeline and the brain dump to something polished that I'm willing to send off to to my advisor was about about two weeks. And so built into that is got my brain dump. Then I need to spend a little bit of time away. So it could be two hours. It could be that I just you know run an errand or do some other task during the day, or it could be I'm closing the laptop for the night. I'm going to sleep on this. Come back to it tomorrow. Let me see what I've said. Okay, this is trash or <laughs> this is really good and I want to develop it. You know, I can make those calls with a with a fresh set of eyes after a little bit of time. So that's been really helpful. Also I will say I am a shameless reacher outer. If there is anybody that I have cited, whether in the book or the dissertation, there's a strong chance that I have emailed that person and said, you know, hi so and so and this, again, this is a cold email. These people don't know me. I'm just a grad student reaching out to say, you know, I'm, I'm citing your work XYZ. Here's how I'm using it. I've attached the chapter. Um, if you wouldn't mind, can you let me know? And I'll ask them something specific, not general. Like, can you give me some feedback? Because you don't want to burden someone with, with all this extra work. But if you ask something specific, like, am I representing your ideas correctly? Or do you think that I've got this right? I mean, I had a really high success rate. I had lots of responses doing that 
during the dissertation and again later during the book. And I actually had more people willing to say, I'll read more. Do you want to send over a chapter or do you want to send over a chapter or two? Yeah, that was very surprising and, and very, very kind of all the people that did that. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it helps to me to have more than just my eyes on a, on the document or, you know, whether it's this book or whether it's a journal article or anything else I've written. So I, I want to know more about your dissertation to book process. There have been lots of people on the show talking about a book that came from a dissertation. But for, for the sake of listeners, I'll just say that you're kind of the closest to that process that I've had. So when we're talking now, you've just gotten final proofs, page proofs for the book. Yeah. Which is super exciting. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I'm curious, just kind of big picture first, what are we talking about timeline for finishing the dissertation and then turning it into a book? Okay, so um, start to finish the, I mean, I started gathering, I started collecting data for the dissertation in 2018. And, you know, I was kind of writing as I was gathering, but like the, the hardcore, like, okay, now I know what my arguments are. All of that probably happened over the span of longer than a semester. It was more than just the fall of 2020. I didn't defend until February of 2020. So we'll, we'll say less than a year, maybe eight months. Then, so February 2020, I defended one month later, uh, COVID hit and the entire world changed. So at that point, I was... I mean, I was very fortunate. I was one of the last students in my cohort that got to defend in person. And we were all just like clamoring around looking for jobs. And because so many institutions were on a hiring freeze at, at that point, you know, dissertation was done. It was in the back of my mind. I wasn't worried about a book. I was worried about finding a job. So I, I interviewed for and did my final interviews at the University of New Orleans in May I think I knew at that point that I was going to be hired for August. So I spent the summer of 2020 doing what I thought was the revision works, uh, writing what I thought was a book and what was really helpful there. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with uh, William Tomato's From Dissertation to Book. That was a helpful guide. So I, I remember doing that this that summer, making the revisions I thought I needed to do. And I made contact with an acquisitions editor at a university press. A, a press that I will, I think is a very good press. I would have definitely liked for them to to publish the book. So I reached out to her. We had a Zoom interview. It went really well. She said, okay, I'm going to send this off to reviewers. Well, then I didn't know what to do next. I was like, okay. And several months passed. And now I know that uh, I burned up a lot of time uh, doing that. I could have maybe reached back out after definitely by six months. But I mean, oh gosh, I probably waited a year. Uh, for her to tell me, I know the reviewers didn't like it. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, thank you. And uh, that's fine because I know if I look back at that version of the manuscript, I said I probably would not have approved it for <laughs> publication either. So anyway, the the Germano book was was a help, but I will say far and away the biggest help uh, to other sources for listeners are Laura Portwood Stacer's The Book Proposal Book. Princeton University Press, and also uh, Melody Hers, writing and publishing your book, a guide for experts in every field. Same, same as I mentioned before, I'm a shameless reacher outer. So I got in touch with Laura, I got in touch with Melody, and was like, "Please, can you give me, you know, more specific advice, uh, guidance?" And it was through, I guess, Laura's book that I realized that developmental editing was a thing. I can pay someone to peer review my work. 
uh, and it's and it, it you will get much deeper feedback than you will get from you know just asking a colleague or a friend or somebody else that you know to give you some feedback. So yeah, I mean it's an investment, I will say, but I did use a developmental editor, and that really really helped take my dissertation and transform it into what looks like a book now. So that was incredibly helpful. So back to the timeline. Let's see. I think I reached out to University of North Carolina Press, who is publishing the book, and two other university presses. Um, I didn't go trade press route. I don't have an agent. Um, don't have any connections there. Maybe for the next book, I'll do that. So I reached out to university presses and tried to find, you know, who are the presses that are on my bookshelf? If if I turn around and look behind me at my books, there's really three major presses that are overrepresented. And those are the three that I got in touch with the acquisitions editor, had chats with all three of them. They were all interested. They all wanted to see the manuscript. Um, and for listeners uh, who may not know this, you can send your book manuscript out to multiple presses at a time. You just have to be transparent about that. So I was, I let them all know, you know, that I'd like what, what my timeline was. And at the time I was, in my administrative role. So I, you know, I wasn't on a tenure track. I didn't have any pressure to publish. I was just doing this because I wanted to. I was doing this because I had already written, you know, a dissertation. Why not make it a book? Why not get my scholarship out into the world? Uh, so they knew that. Anyway, so the book went out for peer review and that process took a, a different amount of time from all different places. Uh, again, this is like, this would have been 2021. So we're still in the midst of COVID. People are very busy. But uh, UNC, my first reviewer responded within like six weeks. I mean, it was a quick and it was a very enthusiastic. Yes, we need to publish this now. It's timely. Let's get it out. Uh, the other reviewer took much longer. Uh, reviewer two, I don't know who you are, but thank you so much. It was a positive review. Uh, <laughs> I did get a contract for it. So, so thank you. I don't mean to knock the time uh, that took. But, you know, on my end, it was like just waiting and like biting, biting my nails. The other two presses also sent it out for review. I got uh, that feedback. So the next step in the process, this is several months in, was looking at all the reviews, looking at the, I had two contract offers and the other, the third press was like, we are still extremely interested. We want to see these changes. And they asked for a book that was a lot different than the one that I had written. So I, I kind of decided uh, all right, so it's going to be between UNC and this other press. And so I looked at the peer reviews. Uh, I thought about which press, which editor I had the best relationship with, which one that I wanted to continue to work with. They were both great. And I ended up going with UNC because of one of the things that one of the big pieces of feedback I got from the reviewer, which is, you know, you've written this great book about how the new right has influenced higher ed since the 60s. But kind of buried within that, you've also told the story about how the new right trained themselves, how they became, you know, how they developed these political personalities and how they shaped the GOP, you know, for decades going into the future. And I thought, yeah, I did do that. <laughs> I did talk about those things. But to me, I'm an ed historian. I'm not a political historian, although I'm extremely interested in that. They were like, this is a better book if you just swap around your your theses. Like if you make this a book about the GOP, and by the way, this is how it's influenced higher ed. Uh, that was extremely daunting to me. 
I mean, imposter syndrome is real. Like the thinking back to, uh, to making those decisions. I forgot this is a question about timeline. I'll say this was in the summer of the summer of summer fall of 2021. So yeah, I, I was like, can I even do this? Met with my editor and we talked about it. And so at that point, I had a lot more reading to do. I needed to learn more about history of the right. I needed to learn more about the POP, about these specific characters that pop up in my book as people and not just as pieces of evidence to this argument about higher education. Uh, so I had to go back to secondary sources. I didn't do any more interviews. I, I should say this. My, uh, the dissertation uh, was a little bit ethnographic. I interviewed, I mean, over 50 people about their time as when they were students in the 1960s. And by the time I was ready to finish the book manuscript, many of them had passed. They weren't even alive to go back to re-interview again. Also, January 6th had happened, and that was just a whole new context for talking to people about, you know, their involvement in the GOP over the years. And so uh, I decided not to do any more oral interviews. I just used what I had, but I did a lot more archival research. So I traveled to Hoover Institution at Stanford and some other places. But anyway, so I had to get uh, a lot more data because I've, I'm approaching the book from a second way. Uh, I had to do a lot more reading. And uh, also, I met a lot more, um, a lot of new people. I started going to like media, uh, media studies conferences and political science conferences. Uh, and it's a whole different you know, field outside of the history of education where I had already known these people and been so comfortable talking about things. It was very new and, and you know, exciting to be interdisciplinary, but also, uh, like I said, imposter syndrome is always like hanging over my head. Should I even be writing a political history when this is not my PhD is in higher ed administration? So anyways, I've had, I've definitely had to work through a lot of that, but I made the decision to publish with UNC the book came under contract. Oh, so uh, my editor gave me like a verbal offer. So we had a, an understanding, but the physical contract didn't come about until I guess the editor had to, to go to a press meeting or go in front of the board to get that approval. So that actually took a couple of weeks. Um, but I signed the contract in March or so of 2022, did my revisions all throughout the summer, also did those archival trips throughout the summer. and. At one point, my editor had to tell me to quit writing because I was like, what if we did two more <laughs> chapters on this, this, and this? He's like, Lauren, you're at 100,000 words. You you have to stop. And so, uh, and I'm glad he did that too. I'm glad he wrote me in because I still have all of that and I can publish that to something else. You know, that data's not going anywhere, but the book, it was important for me at least to, to make it as concise as I could make it because I like reading things that are a little shorter. I think the book's like 200 pages, but it was 300 pages. And so that's a, that's a big difference. The dissertation was close to 400 pages. Lots of block quotes that didn't make the book. But anyways, yeah, so that's the long timeline. And then um, the book will come out in August of 2023. So yeah, so I would say the whole acquisitions process for me took two years, much longer than the dissertation. <laughs> so tell me, I'm really curious to know what were the things you thought your dissertation needed to become a book versus after you worked with a developmental editor? What were the things you ended up working on? Uh, so for one of the things to me that seemed most obvious was taking out so much of the signposting. 
in this chapter, I will talk about X, Y, Z, right? That's not there. And so it really took me thinking like, okay, the books that I read and enjoy, like, what does that look like? And I, I remember specifically, one of the things I talked about with my developmental editor, they said, think of an intro chapter to a book that you like and let that be your model. And so for me, that was Andrew Hartman's War for the Soul of America. It's about 10 or 11 pages. I thought that was a really nice length. So I mean, literally when I say a model, like a physical model down to down to word count, um, not just style. So there was that. And then um, another major difference in the book is that it's got to read cover to cover smoothly, right? It can't, chapters can't be just standalone. I mean, they can in an academic text, but I, I would like to reach uh, my book beyond just the classroom. I already know that everybody that I interviewed who's still alive is going to read it and they're going to pass it around their own circles. So, you know, there's that. And I, I wanted it to be an enjoyable thing. So, and, and that was a different writing approach too, because I wrote each chapter of the dissertation as chapter one. This is the intro. You know, chapter five is the conclusion. And it's, it, it followed this very strict format. But for the book, it was like, no, there's part one and part two. I dabbled with a prologue for a little bit. I ended up taking that out. Uh, but I mean, there's all these, you know, different, there's just a different structure or style that is not as rigidly defined as the dissertation is. So taking out the signposting was huge, making the transitions much more fluid, having callbacks to different chapters, you know, rather than restating something that you had already said chapters before in a different way, just yeah, let's make that one parenthetical reference, like see chapter five. So that that was a, a lot for taking out length. Also taking out these block quotes, it, this broke my heart. But every, <laughs> it feels like every person I talked to that read a chapter that had block quotes in it, were like, Lauren, no one's going to read this. We'll skip right over that. And I'm just like, no, that is the meat. This is this is the evidence before you. We can't take this out. Um, but I did. I took out so many block quotes. Some are still in there. Some some I fought for, and those are really important ones. So anyone who is going to read the book, please read the block quotes. But yeah, that took out a lot of length. Let's see what else. Oh, footnotes. Cleaning up the footnotes for my dissertation. I footnoted everything. I mean everything. I was I was heavily reliant on. Like these five people said this thing. So this is what we need to do. And then and now I know or learned that in the book, the most recent text, or maybe the one that's considered the originator of this argument, you only really need to cite one that really condenses everything. You don't have to cite every person who's ever said this and every page that they said it on. <laughs> so, And some things don't need to be cited at all, right? Some things that are really well known, really well established that would be familiar to at least a historical reader in the field. Some of those citations came out. What else got rid of? I should mention that my, the person who was my developmental editor has a background in political science. That was really important to me when I was looking for who to hire to do this. Uh, I didn't want someone with strictly an education background. I had that covered. I need someone to tell me like, are these claims that I'm making about the GOP right? (laughs) Are they correct? But I mean, the, the biggest difference in the two is length and the fact that what was a sub-argument of the dissertation is the main argument of the book. It's a completely different audience as well. You want to you want to say that your dissertation is, you know, it's your scholarship, it's gonna be read by everyone in the field. But in all honesty, I was writing for my five committee members. And, you know, this book is written for the, I don't know, maybe 700 people who are gonna read it, I hope. 
to talk about how all of this research and revision worked out on the page, I asked Lauren to read an excerpt from chapter one. Here's Dr. Shepard reading from Resistance from the Right. The year 1962 marked the beginning of a critical decline in liberalism from which the United States only momentarily rebounded in 2018. Liberal mood has continued to deteriorate since that high point. Between 1967 and 1970, the national desire for liberalism plunged. Although there was a brief uptick from 1970 to 1973, the era corresponding with American withdrawal from the Vietnam War, liberalism and the American mood continued to depreciate throughout the 1970s. Even when it began to swing back towards liberalism in the 1980s, scores remained close to those of the early Vietnam War years. As the American mood became less liberal, conservative politicians capitalized on the opportunity to gain more success, sparking a, quote, conservative ascendancy in American politics that has lasted into the 21st century. Ironically, the historical memory of American higher education, those years are synonymous with widespread liberalism on campus. Common recollections of college life in the late 1960s and early 1970s include anti-war demonstrations, the creation of ethnic and women's studies programs, and the deconstruction of social norms in appearance, dress, and recreation. Progressive changes in higher education from 1967 to 1970 are better understood as feats accomplished despite an apathetic campus majority and a boisterous anti-liberal assault from the political, cultural, and religious right. One of the challenges that I think this passage really highlights is that there's sort of this like popular belief about higher education this in this time frame that it was this like very liberal. I think UC Berkeley comes to mind for a lot of people on campus, right? But you're kind of correcting that in this book. So how do you balance as a writer saying like what you think you know is wrong, but also <laughs> here is what I'm trying to tell you instead? Yes. Well, that's an interesting passage that you picked because that, uh, to me, that is the most dissertation-y passage of the <laughs> whole book. <laughs> that um, that was actually in the intro. Now it's in the book, chapter one, it was the intro uh, dissertation. But so first off, starting with the claim. Uh, so that whole first paragraph that I read is a claim about how the U.S. was actually becoming more conservative in the post four years. And so the first thing I do that, that listeners can't see, but there's a graph in the book that has all this mapped out. So I, I know if you were listening, you're probably thinking, oh, that's just a lot of information at once. <laughs> it's visually there for you on the page. So it doesn't not come at you quite so fast. But yeah, so I established that, you know, citing the political science who scientists who um, got us that information and then moving on from there, talking about claims about the campus. So the whole, the whole book is arguing that there's this really small cohort of very energetic conservatives. There's, they're divided into a couple of camps. We've got conservative intellectuals. We've got conservative activists. Uh, we've got these traditionalists, like social conservatives and religious conservatives. And so what I'm arguing is those students, as small as they were, had a disproportionate impact on the campus through the things that they did and the messaging that they were spreading. And that when we think about the 60s, we tend to ignore them or maybe throw them out to the margins as just like, you know, part of this anti-intellectual or even like white resistance to the civil rights movement. And it's part of the larger backlash but I think what the story that we all kind of commonly understand uh, is that that backlash wasn't parents or maybe older generations who were off campus. It was among the students themselves, right? I, again, some more context. Most students on campus in the 1960s truly didn't care about politics, right? They 
And and I, I make this case, I elaborate this a lot in the in the first chapter. Readers can read more about that if if you don't believe me. But uh, most students were extremely apathetic. They didn't really get. We don't really see the campus wars really heat up until uh, the three years of the, of the book, sixty-seven to seventy, and that's mostly because of the Vietnam War. Um, and that's because students don't want to be drafted. But the other stories that I kind of tease out from that is like, well, uh, who are the pro-war students, right? Who are the students like saying we need to be in Vietnam, we need to be fighting, you know, against communism and for freedom for the for the South Vietnamese. So I talk about like students at ROTC a lot. But I also talk about students in clubs that historians will recognize, political historians will recognize, Young Americans for Freedom or YAF. Uh, but I also talk about some of the intellectual societies like Intercollegiate Studies Institute, ISI, and you know what role they played, not just in de- defending the Vietnam War, but also resisting demographic changes on campus, right? We start to see more Black students, more uh, women students enrolled in courses and Know, what are their arguments against that? What are, what are the intellectual arguments against making the, the campus more, more democratic? So yeah, those are all things that come up. And the, the way that I push back against the, the story that we popularly understand is just by presenting what their arguments were. Right? So through all of their interviews, the things that they wrote at the time. So finding uh, their underground campus papers. That's another thing. We usually think about underground campus papers or underground campus radio shows as being uh, products of the left, but the, the right was, was pretty, they were doing a lot of work there as well. So you're right. This passage is kind of like less narrative than I often choose on this show. But one of the reasons it really interested me is that you talk a lot about sort of moods in this in this passage, which is something I always think is so interesting in political and cultural history is that historians have to kind of deal with like the the gestalt, the mood, you know, the sort of like feel of an era, which is really hard to sort of track and verify, you know, all of those sorts of things. And then it's also hard to write about it in a way that, you know, your reader can really identify, which I think you've done a really good job of here. So I'm, I'm curious to know how you dealt with that, how you talk about mood, and then also how with it comes this question of like, how do you talk about what your historical actors are saying is happening versus what you, a historian with distance and, and analysis, feel like is happening there? Uh, yes, I'm glad you asked that because that is another thing that came up in the developmental part. So in the dissertation, the evidence is kind of like front and center. It's, it's the main body of the chapter. And my interpretations are the bookends. And that's not true for the book. It's my interpretations are dispersed throughout which I, you know, obviously is going to keep a reader like <laughs> following, following my arguments and my logic as I talk about what these interpretations mean, why they're important and uh, why I think they're correct. So, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, I guess, are you asking like, how do I, how do I say like, this is what they told me, this is really what was going on. If that's the question. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. And just how do you balance that too? Yeah. Well, so the, the balancing thing is just like, I mean, it's, just dispersed throughout like my my interpretation of, of the evidence. How do how do I like understand it and process it? I think I think that is something that I'm able to do just from my own upbringing. I mean, I born and raised in South Mississippi. I am surrounded by conservatism. I I personally was a very conservative child growing up, and then through high school and college, uh, these things make their way out of your system, I guess. 
But I mean, I have a high tolerance even now for listening to somebody who's probably even on the far right and maybe unpacking a lot of what they're saying and contextualizing it with other things that I know to be true that maybe they don't know to be true because it's not the world that they live in, right? It's not information that they're ever exposed to. So yeah, it's just a matter of saying like, you know, here's a claim I make, here's their evidence, here's what they told me. And then contextualizing that, talking about its longer impacts. Uh, and I, I do that at the paragraph level, but also that's really the whole structure for chapters in the book itself. To better illustrate this, we talked about another short section that comes from chapter two. In this excerpt, one of the students that Lauren interviewed is discussing the perceived consequences of raising questions about the type of economics taught in his courses. Here's Lauren again, reading from Resistance from the Right. For students like Gortney, however, finding the words to speak out in class was less of a problem than the perceived repercussions of doing so. As an undergraduate, Washington State University was very Keynesian-oriented, he recalled. Even if you asked questions indicating you were a skeptic, you were immediately discriminated against in terms of grades. I would have asked legitimate questions about how things worked, and my macro instructor, who was a very strong Keynesian, perceived that I was a skeptic, and I think it was fair to say that I got a B in that class instead of an A because of it. It is difficult for a historian today to assess the accuracy of such claims. Were professors in the 1960s biased against their conservative students for comments they made in class? And was that political bias reflected in grade penalties across multiple assignments? It is possible, but other explanations are likely. Another student offered the following interpretation of point deductions. It's not that professors deliberately persecute conservatives, but if you turn in a conservative analysis, they think you haven't grasped the material and give you a low grade. So um, in that passage, sort of the, me the mechanics of those two paragraphs is I had been previously speaking in the chapter about how conservative students felt like they were persecuted or victimized in the classroom uh, for their political beliefs. And one of the ways that they felt it the most was in grade penalties. And that's what they claimed. So I give you a passage from a student who says, you know, he's in his macroeconomics course and he's turning in sort of like a free market analysis and, and because the instructor is such a strong Keynesian, he got a B instead of an A. And so there's that claim, right? There's the conservative representation. Uh, and then I chime in. So my voice says, you know, I can't really assess that, right? I can't go back and talk to your professor. We don't have these records of your grades. At least the student, the former student didn't offer them up to me. So it, it's hard to know. Is that really true? Can I test that? So what I do here to sort of answer that is pull in a quote from another student at the same time who said, that's not really the case. What's happening is these students that think like Courtney, they're turning in their paper and it's like half-baked. And that's the reason that they got the low grade. Uh, so, it, so there, I actually didn't have to do a whole lot of work except present both sides, which is what one of my peer reviewers uh, really wanted me to do. So that's, that's sort of how I managed that's super helpful, actually, just to see kind of how that breaks, breaks down. Well, so you talked a little bit about kind of why, how your perspective sort of enables you to really unpack these things and contextualize them. And I know you've written quite, quite a few op-eds and, and sort of essays for a more public audience. Is there a different process for writing those kind of pieces? Um, I mean, they're much shorter. So, you know, time-wise, they're, they're not as time-consuming. I also usually don't have to do any new research for an op-ed. Um, I can pull from what I already know. Uh, and typically, 
something will happen. And then all, all of my op-eds have been reactive to something that had just happened. I know some people plan op-eds um, ahead of time or in anticipation of some event that will occur. That hasn't been the case for me. Maybe one day it will be. But like the op-eds I've written about are in 2021, cancel culture, obviously <laughs> critical race theory and the hysteria surrounding that. CPAC. So, and something else. I don't know. I've written the fourth one. So I sort of took that, that writing process looks like opening with, you know, whatever's happening in the news at the moment that had happened within the last day or so, explaining that as briefly as I can, perhaps in a paragraph or two, and then saying, you know, calling back to what it is I already know to situate the current moment um, in the past. And then, you know, you do a callback to that <laughs> first moment and say, there's actually a longer history here. And now, you know. Uh, but yeah, it's a much shorter process. The things, for example, that I have written for Made by History uh, in the Washington Post, um, I draw up a brief draft. Usually it's like a thousand words, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. Uh, I think my longest one has only been like 1,200 words. But so I draw up like a thousand word draft. I email it off to the great people at Made by History in this example. Uh, and then They'll respond same day or next day with some thoughts, some comments, um, and then I work through that. And sometimes we'll we'll pass a draft back and forth, three or four different emails. Uh, sometimes it's in really good shape, you know, the first one or two, one or two rounds we go through. But it's got you know its own little mini peer review process, the same we would do for articles or larger manuscripts. And then it, it, this is assuming it doesn't get rejected. I've written plenty of op eds that ne- that never saw the light of day. Uh, so the ones that have made it through, that's the process. And yeah, I mean, in, in terms of like the, the writing, there's no new research because it all comes so quickly, right? You're responding to something immediately in the moment. So you don't have to hit the archives. Well, in our last little bit of time, I want to talk a little bit about inspiration. So I'd like to know more about, you've mentioned a couple of names in the course of our interview, but are there people that you turn to that you read uh, for inspiration for your own writing? Yes. So, I mean, it would be my dream. If I could write like Rick Perlstein, that would just be amazing. If I could write these, uh, his books are probably a little longer than, than what I, what I can do, what I can sit still for, but I mean, they're page turners. And I remember being, I might've been in, in my master's program. I don't know, but, uh, when one of his books came out, which one was it? I guess it was probably before the storm. Anyway, I emailed him and I was like, this is so great. Where are your footnotes? <laughs> and he responded right back, like they're on my website. And I I did not know who I was talking to at the moment. Again, this is me being like a shameless reach router. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Perlstein, this is fantastic work. Please show me your evidence. How embarrassing is that now? Uh, but he was so kind. And I actually know him a little a little bit better. I've had in-person chats with him and that. Don't think he remembers that about me. Thank God. <laughs> but yeah, so he's definitely one. Yeah, the example I used earlier for sure, Hartman's War for the Soul of America. I also really enjoy uh, both of Nikki Hemmer's books. She is another person that I have shamelessly fan mailed and thankfully know a little bit better today. And hopefully she also doesn't remember those shameless fan mails that I've sent in the past. Yeah, I mean, any trying to think of more examples here, but I mean, just anything that is can be a page turner that keeps you engaged in the story. You know, I say that I ha- I write all over my house. I really only read in one place. And so as long as I don't have a crick in my neck or as long as I'm like comfortable sitting in that spot, if 
I'm still turning the page. That is uh, what I sort of desire to be. And now that I'm thinking about it, too, like uh, Pearl Seed and Nicole Hemmer, both, I mean, they're historians, but they both have kind of like a journalism edge to their writing. And so maybe that's what it is that I like so much. And I'll be honest with you, most of what I read on a day-to-day basis is journalism, right? It's the short form popular stuff. Uh, I don't really sit down and read a historical text, usually unless I'm like in the middle of a project or unless it's one that I'm really interested in. But like probably 60% of the things I read are are, uh, journalism. So yeah, maybe that's where I take that inspiration from. And it definitely helps um, in producing op-ed pieces. Sure. What's the best writing advice you've gotten? Oh, uh, (laughs) the last episode of Drafting the Past, your (laughs) guest said uh, something about um, writing being more sculpture than painting. I'm probably misquoting her. A quick editor's note that that was episode 22, Lindsay Borgon Sculpts the Story, in case you'd like to go back and listen to it. It's definitely a good one. I don't remember exactly the way she phrased it, but it's so true because you know, there's, there's this debate about what counts as writing. Like <laughs> I took a walk and I thought about my project today that counts as writing. I don't always count that as writing. It is certainly part of the writing process in the sense that it's brainstorming, but yeah, real writing to me is the editing. It's the combing through, it's the deleting, it's the shortening, it's the making things more concise. So I, I like that a lot, but I mean, I'm part of a writing group. And we've had, we've been going strong since 2020, three of us, we have like three core members and we've, we've added some new people and some people have dropped out over time. But I can, I can tell you that from that writing experience and then also from teaching my own students to write, everyone has a different process. So you just got to find what works for you. But I, I liked her thought that the, the real writing is the cutting and the sculpture, the carving. Before I let you go, is there anything you're working on now that I can ask you about? Uh, yeah, I have a, a lot of stuff in the pipeline. I'm working on um, a book chapter for an, an edited book about authoritarianism uh, in the university. It's a, like a global and historical perspective. I really want to start book two, which will pick up off of where, where I left off from book one, where Resistance from the Right leads off. Uh, I don't know that I will continue to focus on the right so much. I mean, I will, that'll be a focus, but it it won't be so loudly about, you know, what is the GOP doing? It'll be more about maybe like legislation and policy changes over time. I don't know. I'm still developing these things. Also, because I'm not a full-time faculty member, grant funding is difficult. There are semesters when I'm not affiliated with the university at all if my courses don't make. So that was the case in 2021. Summer and fall, I didn't have classes, so I didn't have an institutional affiliation. So you know, things are constantly in motion to get funding, to travel, to, to get my data. So we'll see. But there are there are definitely things in the pipeline. And yeah. Well, Lauren Lasam Shepard, thank you so much for joining me on Drafting the Past. Yes, thank you for having me. I love the show. Thanks again to Dr. Lauren Lasab Shepard for taking the time to join me for Drafting the Past. And thanks to all of you listening who have been supporting the show through 30 episodes. As usual, you can find links to all the books we talked about, including Lauren's new book in the show notes at draftingthepast.com. And if you'd like to help keep the show going for another 30 episodes, consider donating at patreon.com slash draftingthepast. Until next time, remember that friends still don't let friends write boring history.